Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. As World War I raged across the globe, hundreds of young women toiled away at the radium dial factories, where they painted clock faces with a mysterious new substance called radium. Assured by their bosses that the luminous material was safe, the women themselves shone brightly in the dark, covered from head to toe with the glowing dust. With such a coveted job, these shining girls were considered the luckiest alive, until they began to fall mysteriously ill. As the fatal poison of the radium took hold, they found themselves embroiled in one of America's biggest scandals and a groundbreaking battle for workers' rights. We're going to be talking today with uh, Kate Moore, who's author of the New York Times bestseller, The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. Kate Moore is a Sunday Times bestselling author. She writes across various genres, from biography to history to gift and humor. She's also in demand as a book editor and ghostwriter, and she lives in London, England, with her husband. Here's my conversation with Kate Moore. How did you uh, discover that this uh, fascinating story? Well, I discovered it through directing a play about the Radium Girls. Um, you can probably hear from my accent that I'm British. And so this was in London, about 4,000 miles away from uh, the town at the center of this story. So the play that I directed was called The Shining Lives by Melanie Marnich. And it described this incredible true story that I'd never heard of before of these American women who used to paint watches with a luminous paint during the Roaring Twenties. And it told the story of how they got sick from working with that radioactive paint, how the companies refused to admit responsibility, and it charted the women's fight for justice. And the moment I discovered this story through this play, the women just seemed so incredibly courageous to me. And as I conducted research for my play, wanting my production to be authentic, I also realized that although these women were amazing, there was no book that was actually about them and put them at the center of their story. And so how the book came about was because I couldn't believe there was a book that hadn't already done this, you know, told the story from their perspective in their own words as much as possible. And so having discovered the story, I I couldn't forget it and I couldn't let this sort of untold story go untold anymore. Uh, and this is a fascinating story, tragic in many ways, uh, heroism mm. as well. So, th- so the the time around World War One is when the when these girls were working. That, that's when the first dial painting studios were opened. Yes, and you can imagine that during wartime, the demand for glow in the dark dials, whether they were on a soldier's wristwatch or on the dashboard of a plane or a ship or an automobile, you know, the demand went up massively because of nighttime operations and, you know, all of those kind of things that you have in the war. And so the radium girls, the dial painters, who were the ones painting all these glow-in-the-dark dials, suddenly found themselves and their services greatly in demand. So actually there was a real sort of boom at that time. And one of the most heartbreaking things about the story, as you rightly picked up there, is because of this boom the girls actually encouraged their sisters and friends and cousins to join them on the job. So because it was so much in demand during the First World War, you actually ended up with whole sets of siblings painting alongside each other in the studio, little knowing that they were actually putting themselves in great danger. Very tragic, but, you know, we know (laughs) that radium is incredibly Mm. radioactive. I think they didn't know, certainly the girls didn't know. Did, 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 Did anyone know? Well, I mean, that is the million-dollar question. I I think what's really important to say at, 
you know, the, the received wisdom of that time during the First World War is that there was this perception, certainly among the sort of general public, um, not so much among medical men and, and scientific people, um, but the received wisdom of the age was that radium and radioactivity itself was not just safe, but actually was beneficial to health. So part of the reason the radium girls were promoting the job to one another was because they thought they were lucky to work with this substance. So it was nicknamed liquid sunshine at the time and seen as this wonder drug. It's impossible for us to believe our sort of, you know, modern mindset. But at the time the radium girls were painting those dials with the luminous paint, actually people were drinking radioactive water as a health tonic. The recommended dose was five to seven glasses a day. And actually radium was sung about on Broadway, put into cosmetics, you know, face creams and eyeshadows and rouge, put into toothpaste, put into chocolate, you know, taken as a as a tablet, as a kind of vitamin. So it was a very different world in which we're, you know, talking than, than the one we live in now. But it is also absolutely essential for me to say that even though it was the received wisdom of the age, ever since radium had been discovered pretty much, which is at the turn of the century, it was discovered in 1898, actually radium was known to be dangerous to humans too because people, you know, received radiation burns from it. The difference is that people thought a large amount of radium, you know, could hurt you and it destroyed human tissue, so they put it to use to treat cancer. But because it treated cancer successfully, and it's still used today to treat cancer, because it was used in this sort of life-saving way, entrepreneurs thought, well, you know, if it can cure cancer, what else can it do? And so this is where the industry kind of sprung up because they thought, well, okay, a large amount might kill you, but perhaps a small amount, you know, could be good for your health because it's so powerful. That's what they were attracted by, the power of the radioactivity, even though they didn't properly understand it. So uh, it was interesting for me to learn uh, somebody must have been concerned somewhere because the, uh, if I've got this right, the, the male technicians took some precautions where they were not having the, the female painters take any precautions. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it was one of the most shocking things about the story that on the very same, you know, sites where the companies were based, you had one building in which the radium girls are lip pointing because that's the other important thing to say about their story. They're not just working uh, with this radioactive paint. They're actually taught a technique where they're instructed to put their paintbrushes in their mouths to get a fine point. So they're swallowing the radium. And in the building next door, as you say, the male lab workers are protected from the dangers that are known of the large amounts of radium. So they're wearing lead aprons and they're not allowed to touch the radium with their bare hands. And as I say, the discrepancy comes about because of the lack of knowledge really about radium. We knew a large amount was dangerous. We thought a small amount was safe. But it's very important to say that the only reason we thought a small amount was safe was because the entrepreneurs who had built this lucrative industry on radium told us it was safe. That was all it was predicated on. 
And of course, they ignored all evidence to the contrary because they didn't want this lucrative industry to come tumbling down. And that's why when the radium girls start to get sick, inevitably from swallowing radioactive paint, the companies try their hardest to silence these women because they don't want anything to affect the bottom line. And uh, it's an old story, isn't it? And I want to get there to, you know, that uh, that the companies would push back because it's affecting the bottom line. Before we get there, I wanted maybe you could talk a little bit about how pervasive this 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 was. You you want reading the book, you want to reach back through time and tell these girls, no, no, don't don't do that. Don't uh, yeah, you know, don't don't go to work. Don't get covered in this. But it, it's just pervasive. Yeah, absolutely pervasive. I mean, and as I say, there was just this lack of knowledge. Um, and of course, the girls were, were told, you know, directly told by their managers that it was safe. They asked about it. May Cubley, who's one of the radium girls I write about, she said, you know, first day on the job, the first thing we asked was, does this stuff hurt you? And they said no. And so the girls actually gloried in the fact that they worked with this glamorous, glowing substance. So they were nicknamed the ghost girls because during their work, they used to get covered in this shimmering, glowing dust so that when they walked home at night, they would actually glow as they were walking along the streets, which is why they attracted this nickname. And in fact, because they thought it was safe, as I say, they sort of delighted in this wondrous substance. So they would deliberately wear their sort of party dresses to the plant. So when they went out dancing after work in the speakeasies and the music halls, they would be kind of shimmering like night fireflies, you know, in lighting up the nightlife. And they were also, you know, they'd have a joke with it. So they would go into the dark room with sort of leftover paint and they'd just have a joke with each other. So Marie Rossiter you know, talked about how she used to paint a kind of comedy moustache and a, you know, eye, big eyebrows and a chin on herself. One girl painted her teeth with it for a smile that would knock her date dead because her teeth would then glow in the dark. Yeah, just <laughs> looking back, uh, it is just tragic. Um, but, but at the time, yeah. the, these were these were good jobs, right? High paying. Girls must have felt lucky. Absolutely. I mean, it, it was. I mean, it was the one of the um, kind of townspeople in the towns where these women were working. She she described it as the elite job for the poor working girl. And you're absolutely right. You know, not only did they get to work with radium, not only did they have the glamour of the glow, but it was also immensely well paid. And most of the radium girls came from poor immigrant families. You know, they were working class women. A lot of them were teenagers, you know, 14, 15 years of age when they started dial painting. And yet, because of their wages, they were, they were paid by the number of watches that they painted. It was all about the productivity. But for those girls who were really skilled and really good at their job, they actually took home a salary or a kind of wage that was in the top 5% of female wage earners nationally. And they earn more than three times the average factory floor worker. So, yes, they were, they were essentially raking it in. Um, and, you know, and they'd spend that money on silks and furs. So these were very glamorous girls who thought they had everything in the world going for them because they were dial painters. So, of course, the problem is radium is very radioactive. In fact, it's, you know, excessive, yeah. what, 1,000 years, 1,500 years before it 
Um, you know, that's right. Yeah, sixteen hundred years. Um, it, it's the type of radium that they were using. Radium two two six has a half life of one thousand six hundred years. Mm. So even now, you know, we're talking a hundred years after these girls were painting during the First World War. The radium that they used is still just as powerful as it was a hundred years ago, and it's got fifteen hundred years before it starts to subside in that incredible power and that incredible radioactivity that it has. So skip ahead, uh, we'll loop back, but skipping ahead, you you write about going to the graves of some of these women, recognizing that, uh, you know, you, the yeah. radium is still there under, under the ground, there in their bones. Absolutely, yeah, and, you know, um, the sort of cleanup operation from this historical story is actually very much present. You know, if you go to Ottawa, Illinois today, which is one of the towns that I focus on in the book, you will see that they are still cleaning up, uh, you know, the radioactive legacy that's been left by these companies and these studios where the girls painted because it's still dangerous today. We're having to protect the townspeople now because they're still exposed to this very dangerous radioactivity. You're listening to Access Utah. My guest for the hour is Kate Moore, author of the New York Times bestseller, The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. Well, much more of the story, of course, to come. More with Kate Moore following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas and action. Online at utahhumanities.org. This is Richard Hatch for Bringing More to Life. You love and appreciate your parents, but your parents can't tell this unless you show it by the way you treat them. We might bring heartache without realizing it. We don't call them much. We forget special events. We ask for money. We don't offer help as often as we could. We know that including them in family events can be burdensome so the invitation isn't extended. You can make a change this very day. If you feel you can do more, it's not too late. Begin by picking up the phone and calling. I plan to call my mother as soon as this airs to see if she heard it. A simple invitation can bring more to their lives in ways you never knew. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the World War I era, um, young women toiled away at the radium dial factories, where they painted clock faces with a mysterious new substance called radium. Assured by their bosses that the luminous material was safe, the women themselves shone brightly in the dark, covered from head to toe with the glowing dust. With such coveted job, these uh, girls were considered the luckiest alive until they began to fall mysteriously ill. As the fatal poison of radium took hold, they found themselves embroiled in one of America's biggest scandals in a groundbreaking battle for workers' rights. We're talking with Kate Moore, author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. You do it uh, pretty much chronologically, but as I'm reading along, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, knowing the end of the story, um, I wonder if you could talk about what radium does. This struck me, I didn't, didn't know this, the body, I guess... Um, reacts to radium or takes radium in kind of like calcium, so it goes straight to the bones? That's right, yeah. It's biomedically very, very similar. They're kind of in similar areas um, on the periodic table, I believe, and so it acts 
in exactly the same way in the human body. You know, we all know we're supposed to drink, you know, lots of milk to make our bones strong because the calcium in the milk, you know, serves to strengthen um, our skeleton. Well, radium goes into the skeleton in the same way, but it has uh, a diametrically opposite effect to that strengthening power of calcium. So if, as these girls did, as Grace Fryer, Catherine Sharp, May Cubberley did, if you're swallowing radium, even a tiny amount of radium on a daily basis, that radium will head straight to your bones. And one of the most perplexing, well, two perplexing things actually about the effect radium has on the human body. One, it takes a long time to show itself. So it wasn't like these girls were going to work and the, you know, the very next day they got sick. Radium poisoning actually takes years to show itself. And the other perplexing thing about it that the girls had to struggle with as they were kind of slowly coming to realize that the terrible tragedy that happened to them is that it settles in the human body in different places, almost on a whim. So Grace Fryer felt it in her spine and her feet. Catherine Sharp felt it in her teeth to begin with. Um, you know, another woman, Quinta McDonald, felt it in her hip. And so as, you know, we're trying to get to the bottom of this medical mystery, you know, why are these young women who were teenagers when they were dial painting and, and now in their early 20s, why when one of them has an aching hip or a sore back, you know, to pinpoint radium was actually quite a mystery that doctors had to solve. But to come back to your original question about, you know, what is it doing? Well, essentially, radium, once inside the human body, right next, you know, to the bone marrow within those bones, it is emanating that radioactive power. And in short, it was destroying the women's bones, you know, from the inside out while they were still alive. Mm. So it was boring holes into their bones. You know, when they did autopsies on these women afterwards, they found that their bones were honeycombed and moth-eaten. They actually had holes in them. So you can imagine the horrific pain of these girls. You know, Grace's vertebrae in her spine were crushed by the radium. Catherine's teeth all fell out, leaving behind these sort of horrible infections of the jaw that would not only into the tissue but then also affect the jawbone and I think perhaps one of the most horrifying stories and it's a true story in the book um, concerns Quinta's sister Molly Magia and she describes going to a dentist because she had um, you know very painful jaw she'd lost her teeth at that point and the dentist reached inside to examine her jawbone and he just probed very gently against the bone with his finger. And the bone, the jawbone, actually broke because of that gentle touch. And so fragile had the bone become that he was actually able to lift it out without an operation. Just by reaching into her mouth and touching the bone, he could pick out the pieces, the fragments of that bone with his hands. That's what these women were going through. They were being destroyed from the inside out. Just a horrifying, horrifying poisoning that they had to endure. 
Yeah, just it, it is. It is horrifying. So these were a lot of them teenagers, young women, um, and mm-hmm. I guess by the time symptoms began to appear, they, uh, you know, were moving ahead with their lives, getting married, having kids. I guess so. This is affecting absolutely whole yes. families. Um, some of them were. Some of them, uh, Grace Fire in in particular, is one. She was a um, kind of boxed the trend of, of that age, really. So she was the head of her department in her bank. Um, and that's what I love about these women. They're all different. So, yes, you're quite right. Some of them have settled down and have families. Others are pursuing careers and things. But they're, most of them are moving on. They're not necessarily dial painters anymore when they start to get sick, which is another problem for the radium girls. So uh, the, uh, many of them begin to get sick. Um, mm. h- how, how long after they, they've been working in the, in the plants? It, it really varied. So I, w- I would say probably the sort of shortest lead time, if you will, um, was about five years. But actually, radium poisoning is so insidious that it became like this ticking time bomb in the girl's bones. So some people got sick after five years. Other people, it was 15 or 20 or 30 or even 40 years before they began to see the effects of the poisoning. Did they, uh, uh, how quickly did they connect this to their work? And how did that happen? Um, well, the girls connected it pretty pretty soon, pretty quickly, actually. Um, because, as I say, you know, during the war, they had been promoting the job to each other. So it wasn't like um, kind of, you know, separate individuals had come and worked in this studio. They all knew each other. They were all friends. They were sisters. They were cousins. And so as they each started to get sick, there were already these sort of networks of female friendship that existed. So the girls were actually able pretty early on to say, well, I'm sick and you're sick and, you know, Helen down the road is sick and so is Irene. And, you know, very quickly they they kind of joined the dots. Um, It took the authorities much longer to intercede. Um, You know, some of the dentists who were treating the girls went to the factory and they said, we think it, you know, the work here is harmful. Um, The company obviously didn't want to know and kind of, you know, had a go at these dentists for sort of gossip mongering and starting rumours. You know, they were outraged at this slur on the company's reputation. And actually, and, you know, somewhat cynically, one might say, the authorities really only took note once the first male employee of the radium firm died, a Dr. Lehman, who was a chemist. And at that point, he was autopsied, found to have died from radium poisoning. And only at that juncture did medical experts really start investigating what was going on with the radium girls. So it, it took him dying. They believed his story, I guess, not the, not the girls. Yeah, I mean, he he had worked with a much larger amount of radium, so um, they kind of, you know, they were they were willing to consider the fact that he may have died from radium poisoning, and they properly in, investigated that. And then once the doctor had sort of, um, it was one key doctor in particular who was involved in solving this medical mystery. He was a brilliant doctor called Harrison Martland, um, who worked out of the city hospital in Newark, in New Jersey. Um, because as the book describes, you know, r- dial painting was actually taking place all across America. But I focus in particular on New Jersey and Illinois. 
And it was Dr. Martland in New Jersey who was the one who discovered, um, you know, what had been going on in these studios and the fact that the radium girls were being poisoned by the so-called wonder substance. And Martland, you know, autopsied the radium girls. The first radium girl autopsied was called Sarah. And he was the one that proved the connection that the radium girls had long suspected that they'd had no in, in authority on their side before. Mm. Um, the companies, the, the owners of the companies, uh, you know, at first you could mm. you could say, okay, nobody knows really, or very few people know the dangers. Yeah. Of radium, but but as it goes along, and the companies still put up a wall. Um, at mm-hmm. some point, this becomes, I think, pretty cynical on their on their side. Yeah, ab- absolutely. As you say, there is, um, you know, a, a slim argument to say, well, perhaps they didn't know to begin with. But once it became clear, you know, not only did they refused to admit responsibility for what they'd done, but they continued to perpetuate the myth of radium safety. Um, And I think that's what really infuriated these women that I've written about in the book, you know, Grace Fryer, Catherine Donahue in Illinois, because they could see that, you know, they knew it it was the radium, Um, you know, despite the fact that a cover-up was going on, despite the fact that you know, the radium companies were hiring so-called experts to try and sort of disprove this link. The girls knew that it was radium that was hurting them. And in fact, the sort of, you know, the battle that then ensues, this sort of incredible legal fight for justice, is even more remarkable, I think, because it's altruistic. Because these girls are sick, but, you know, there's nothing that can really be done for them. You know, radium poisoning is fatal. Once you have radium in your bones emanating that power, nothing can get it out of the human body. And yet these women, you know, don't accept their fate quietly. When the companies, you know, embark on this, as you you say, kind of, you know, almost unbelievable cover-up, you know, these lies that they're putting out, not only about radium, but also about the women, you know, the, these girls, these incredible radium girls, they fight for justice despite the fact it will not help them. They fight for other women and other workers. And, you know, that is what I think is so incredible about their story, the sort of selflessness with which they embarked on this, you know, incredible fight for justice, left this incredible legacy that, that lasts to this day. By and large, they they were dying, right? They knew they were dying. They proceeded with the yep. their cases, as you say, altruistically. They they want the record to be clear. Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, it, it's such an incredibly moving story because you know these women were so sick when they're you know giving evidence against the firm. The firms obviously try and drag it out cynically for as long as they possibly can because, of course, you know if the girls are dead, they can't speak out. And so they try and delay things, but these girls keep fighting. So they're taking the stand in court, you know, wearing metal back braces because their own spines have been crushed by the radium. They are collapsing in the courtroom sometimes because the kind of truth of the evidence is almost too much for them to bear. And yet the next day they're there giving evidence on their deathbeds at home so even if they can't get to court, the court comes to them because these women are so determined to have a voice to speak out against this injustice that they're doing it on their deathbeds. You know, they are just the most courageous women I have ever, you know, had the privilege of writing about. And I just think they're amazing. 
yeah, in fact, you you were just uh, t- talking about that. Uh, there's a photograph in the book of Catherine Donahue. I think it's Catherine Donahue on her. She's collapsed in it court. It is Catherine Donahue, yes. And uh, and so the court comes to her. Yes. She, she's she's in bed or on a couch and giving testimony, essentially dying. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and kind of the the kind of people, you know, the eyewitnesses who were there at the time said, you know, she barely opened her eyes as she was giving her evidence. You know, her her voice was was often quite weak, you know, and you couldn't almost hear her sometimes. She'd been so, you know, so weakened by the poisoning. And as you say, you can see in these pictures, you know, she is, she's almost like a skeleton. You know, the, the radium girls were nicknamed the Society of the Living Dead because they lost so much weight. And as I say, they had this time bomb ticking in their bones. So they were sort of the walking dead. You know, they knew they were going to die. And for Catherine to be, you know, so, so weak and yet have so much power to have the strength to still keep fighting, I just think is remarkable. And you can see that in the images, the strength of these women. You know, they are making the ultimate sacrifice, but they are determined that it will not be a sacrifice made in vain. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and my guest for the hour is Kate Moore. Uh, she's author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. We'll have more with Kate Moore and The Radium Girls following this break. Hey, I'm Ali Hassan, in for Tom Power. Bo Burnham started out making YouTube videos of comedic songs as a teen and became a huge stand-up comedian. He tells me about getting into the mind of a teenager in his directorial debut, 8th grade. That's all coming up on cue for PRI Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Bronson Tigert, an agriculture, business, and economics reporter for Utah Public Radio. I want to bring UPR listeners in-depth stories from the agricultural, business, and economics world. If you have comments, story ideas, or questions for any of us at the station, I'd love to hear them. Please visit our website at upr.org or call us at 800-826-1495. You can also share ideas with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just be sure to include the hashtag, I am UPR. As she was getting ready to write this, composer Alexandra Vribilov went to lots of taverns. She wasn't looking for a drink. There was something else she was tracking down. I'm Fred Child. We'll hear what Alexandra Vribilov discovered on the next Performance Today from APM. Join us this evening at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio is celebrating our 65th anniversary and would like to thank Gem City Fine Foods for becoming one of our newest sponsors. For more information on how you can become a sponsor, call 435-797-3138. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with Kate Moore, author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. Now, you have written that uh, your, your mission here is to, is, is to witness for these, these women, right, and, and to help us to know them. So I want you to, to maybe to talk about a few of them, maybe starting with 
one of the central figures in this book. I think she was a central figure in the play. It's right. That's Catherine Donahue that we've been uh, talking, talking yeah, about. Yeah, Catherine Donahue, who, who, she was the lead litigant in um, the Illinois case. And you're quite right. She was the leading um, character in the play I directed. So she was really my way into this story. So it's been a wonderful privilege to write about her, an extraordinary experience for me as an author as well to have met someone who is a real person through a play. And then through my research for the book, I obviously came to her hometown. I visited her house. I went to her church and sat, you know, under the same vaulted ceiling that she once did. I visited her grave. I met with her family members, her nephews, her nieces, and, you know, really wanted to know who she was because my mission in writing The Radium Girls was to bring each of these women to life. So I can now tell you that Catherine Donahue was not your sort of stereotypical, you know, battler for justice, really. She was a very quiet woman. She was incredibly devout. One of the most upsetting things for her about her radium poisoning is that it so sort of fixed the bones in place. They sort of fused in a, in a way. Um, it meant that she was unable to kneel and pray in church. And that for her was absolutely devastating. She had to take communion at home after that. Um, so she was a very ordinary woman, but in my eyes, an extraordinary, ordinary woman. Because when she found herself caught up in this tragedy, despite the fact that she wasn't necessarily a, a personality who would, you know, perhaps be very driven and very noisy and, you know, all of those kind of things that we might imagine someone that is a lead litigant in a case to be, she thought, you know, she knew it was the right thing to do. And, you know, imagine this story. Imagine being Catherine Donahue, seeing your friends sickening around you, seeing the woman who used to sit opposite you in his ballot, seeing her die, you know, it would give you the strength to keep fighting on. And so Catherine did that. She was a mother. She had two young children uh, when she died who were also, it seems, physically affected by the radium poisoning. And th that is just one of the stories that you will read about in The Radium Girls. She was this extraordinary, ordinary woman. Um, and as I say, it's been a privilege to get to know her better through her letters, through her newspaper interviews, and through her family members who, are, who I met. The I think it's the photograph we've been talking about. Maybe it's a different one. There's uh, uh, Catherine's husband, Tom's, leaning over her, bending mm. you know, solicitously over her. That that's illustrates yeah. the other part of the story. You mentioned the children. Of course, Tom Donahue loses his wife early. Mm. And it yeah. seems, seems like and there's that was something that I really wanted to, to bring out in this book because as, as we've touched on in this interview, you know, the Radium Girls have had this extraordinary legacy in terms of workers' rights, in terms of legal legis legislation to sort of ensure, you know, helpful working practices, an incredible scientific legacy. But for me, what was essential and what was important and what I wanted the book to do was to focus on the women and their personal stories. So that includes, you know, what is it like for a husband to lose his wife at, at such a young age? You know, Catherine uh, was uh, 35 when she died. Um, and the book is actually dedicated to the Radium Girls and those who loved them. 
and it explores those personal tragedies. So it looks at Albina, for example, who was unable to have children and um, who had a, a stillbirth, you know, because of the radium poisoning. Um, and it looks at Tom, you know, Tom and Catherine's story for me was just this heartbreaking love story. Um, you know, when Catherine was too sick to walk anymore, Tom would carry her around in his arms. You know, he carries her to the courtroom to give evidence because she's too weak to get there. But he carries her there because that's what she wants more than anything is to give evidence against this firm that has killed her, that has robbed her of the chance to be a mother to her children. And Catherine was someone who was also orphaned at a young age. Um, so for me, that was just something, you know, how do you feel when you've been orphaned yourself to know that you're going to leave your children without a mother? I just think it's so distressing to think about these personal realities of what these historical figures went through, because hopefully in my book, they're not historical anymore. Hopefully you meet Tom and Catherine and Grace and the children, Tommy and Mary Jane, and you appreciate the human story and the human reality and heartache behind these facts. That's what I hope. You uh, understand you uh, kept photographs of these women, um, next to your yeah. desk as you're writing writing this, I guess, to keep them present? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you can probably tell as, as I talk about them, you know, I, I felt this personal connection with them, and that was true when I was directing the play all the way through to writing the book. But yes, you're quite right. I, I wrote with photographs of them displayed around my desk. So as I was writing about Albina's, you know, stillborn baby, or as I was writing about, you know, Grace's death, um, I could look at the women, I could look them in the eyes, as, as you can in a, a photograph, and, you know, this book is really dedicated to them. This book is a, a platform for them and their stories and their voices uh, to speak out. That's what I really wanted to do, was to give the Radium Girls a voice. Um, I want to, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, how you found their voice. Of course, you have photographs. You're able to to, to mm. find letters, right? Uh, of course, the the court uh, transcripts. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I, I I came to America um, for a month and travelled around researching the Radium Girl. So, as I say, you know, part of that was following in their footsteps. So to actually go to their hometowns and the places that were important to them, but it was also looking in museums and archives and libraries, you know, looking for their letters, looking for their diaries, for the newspaper interviews that they gave at the time, for their court testimonies where they're on the stand, you know, describing in their own words exactly what happened to them. And all of those first-person quotations from the Radium Girls themselves are stitched into the narrative of my book. So I hope to read it is actually to read their story in their own words. You know, um, it's filled with quotations from the Radium Girls themselves. I wonder, uh, one of the women who especially stood out to me is uh, Peg Looney. Am I, am I saying that correctly? Yes. Uh, tell me yes. a little bit yes, about, more right. about her. Um, Peg was wonderful. She was um, a redhead. Uh, she's a very slender girl. Um, she was prone to giggling fits. And she was very scholarly. So um, she actually wanted to be a school teacher when she, um, you know, grew up, as it were, that was her ambition. Um, but she came from a very poor family and um, she needed to get a job. And so she got a job as a dial painter, which, as I say, was very well paid. And she was a very generous young woman. So her family remembered 
that she would share that good fortune with them, you know, um, as I say, she came from a large family, so she had lots of brothers and sisters, and she would buy one of her little sisters, you know, a beautiful dress for her eighth grade graduation. Um, you know, she she was a very sort of giving person. Um, and what happened to Peg is really quite shocking, and without, without giving away, you know, too much that is, is described in the book, um, she gets sick, you know, one of the shocking things is the medical treatment that the radium girls receive or don't receive. So one of the things that happened to Peg to treat her was that they put an ice pack on her chest. Um, I'm not quite sure how that was supposed to battle, uh, you know, the radioactivity in her bones, but that was what she endured. Um, and the firm that had employed her kept a very close eye on her decline. And as I say, I won't give any spoilers, but suffice it to say that the firm had a vested interest in what happened to Peg after she died and they weren't prepared to give up the um, the power that they'd had over her as her employer. They they carried that on even after death. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's quite the story. Um, I, I wonder, um, you, you talked to several relatives. What, uh, That's right. What so, was... um, with Peg in particular, I, I spoke to her niece, Darlene. Hmm. Um, and Darlene was actually born after Peg had died, because Peg obviously died you know, very young. And um, But Darlene said that because Peg's sisters used to talk about her so much, and actually I met, I met one of those sisters, Jean, as well, who was able to talk to me about Peg. Darlene said because the sisters had all talked about Peg so much, Darlene felt as though... She knew her. She was just as much a relative as all her other aunts and uncles were. Um, yeah, for me, it was really important that I spoke to the family members and they were all very generous in, in sharing their recollections, you know, their photograph albums, you know, sharing these family stories that had been passed down, you know, through the generations. Obviously, some of them are, are firsthand because they're from sisters or, or sons or daughters. And... I really wanted to understand, you know, what each individual radium girl was like, you know, who was quiet, who was a flirt, who was the one that would always get the party started. And that's what the family members were able to tell me, as well as to describe the sick rooms and, you know, what really happened towards the end as well and how the poisoning affected these these women, these real women. We'll talk a little bit about, uh, you know, larger effects. Um I know that there was a there's a connection to the Manhattan Project. That's right. This this is part of this extraordinary legacy that the Radium Girls have, has left us. So they were painting originally in the First World War, and so all these things we talked about happening. You know, the mystery of what was hurting them, uh, the fight for justice that they then uh, pursued through the courts. You know, all of this happens over the following years. So by the time the Second World War comes around, which, of course, the Manhattan Project was, was part of that global conflict, you know, the radium girls have established that radioactive materials are dangerous if you're working with them. So the legacy that they left is that Glenn Seaborg, who was a leading uh, scientist working on the Manhattan Project, he actually wrote in his diary that as he was making his rounds through the laboratories of the Manhattan Project one night, he was struck by a vision of the workers in the radium dial painting industry. He remembered Grace Fryer and Catherine Donahue, and he remembered what had happened to them. 
And because of that, he insisted that they undertake research into plutonium and the radioactive materials they were using for the atomic bomb to find out, you know, well, is this material dangerous? And it was proven that actually the materials they were using on the Manhattan Project were biomedically very similar to radium. And so because the radium girls had sort of flagged this warning, it meant that Seaborg could then insist that workers on the Manhattan Project had to be protected. And so safety measurements were put in place on that project that were based directly on what scientists had learned from the bodies of the radium girls. So, you know, the amount of time that they were allowed to be exposed to it, the fact that they couldn't handle it in a certain way. And because of that, the Manhattan Project was largely conducted in safety for the workers. You know, if it hadn't been for the radium girls, many more people would have died and would have felt the effects like way beyond the Second World War. And the Atomic Energy Commission actually described the radium girls' contribution as invaluable after the war. We just have a few minutes left here in the conversation. Um, one of your main goals is to help us to get to know the Radium Girls themselves and to give yeah. them voice. And so I wonder, um, what do you think they would say if they were speaking to us today? Hmm. Um, well, I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? Obviously, you know, their, their voices are in the book, so we know what we thought about what happened to them. What would they think about today? I mean... I think they'd probably be saddened that we still fight the same battles, that there are still corporate cover-ups, that, you know, we still need regulations and we still need to call out injustice uh, where, where we see it. And I hope, too, that they would be proud of those activists who are doing, you know, just as the Radium Girls themselves did in standing up for your rights and standing up for what is right. Um, because that's what the girls did, and I hope, you know, their voices shine out through this book, and I, I hope their voices inspire people who read it today um, to sort of follow in the girls' footsteps and to echo those voices through time. Uh, I don't know if you have your book with you. I, I do. I have a copy yeah, right you here. You do. Yeah. Um, I wonder, uh, I'm <laughs> I'm just haunted by the quote you have in the, in the front of the book from the Ottawa High School yes. yearbook. Yeah, I wonder if you'd. I read just thought that, that was perfect when I found it in. Um, I found it in in the high school yearbook in Ottawa Public Library. Yeah. This is this is Ottawa High School yearbook, nineteen twenty-five. Yeah. Would you like me to read it uh, out? Yes. I shall never forget you, hearts that know you, love you, and lips that have given you laughter, have gone to their lifetime of grief and of roses searching for dreams that they lost in the world far away from your walls. Hmm. Um, and, as, you know, we, we don't know. I guess we don't know who wrote that. It's just in, it, no, and, it was and just part of the yearbook. I, yeah. I, as you say, it's, it's a, a quotation that is perfectly apt for this story. Um, but actually, the, the your walls is, is directed at the high school itself, the kind of you... The you in the quote is actually the school, so we don't know who wrote it. There was no attribution in the yearbook. Um, but it's, um, yeah, it, when I found it, I was just like, this is, this is perfect. This is, 
this needs to go in in the book because for me as well it, it kind of has a sense of the sort of the poetry and the tragedy of what happens to them you know their lifetime of grief and of roses um dreams that they lost in the world but the you know these are young girls who you know they didn't get to see much of the world because you know they were sick by the time they're in their 20s um many of them die at that same age and it just sort of captured that that feeling for me um of this poignant tragedy this preventable tragedy um and the kind of the nature of these young women to whom it happened so the uh the the book's been out several months the paperback is just coming out um it's it's gotten you know a lot of attention new york times bestseller what uh, from what kinds of reaction are you getting from from readers what what has surprised you from that or if, if any um, the the reaction has just been wonderful, and I'm so touched. You know, particularly the reason I'm I'm particularly touched that it's been so successful in America is because these women in their lifetime, you know, were shunned and silenced by the company and disbelieved, and you know, even in their own communities, you know, people didn't want them to cause a fuss. You know, particularly in Illinois during the Great Depression, you know, the idea of suing your company, you know, suing your employer when so many millions of Americans are out of work. You know, that was not a popular choice for the Radium Girls to pursue this fight for justice. So the fact that America has now sort of embraced and celebrated them just means such a lot to me. Um, So I'm so grateful for people, you know, for reading it, for recognizing how important they are, how courageous they are. Um, I, I I think the surprise for me is just that the book has, you know, been a successful as it is, because um, I, I thought they were amazing, but I didn't know if, if anyone else would. Um, and I'm just delighted that it has had that impact. Um, I think readers are connecting with the girls themselves, and that is all I could ask. Um, you know, several reviewers and, and people have written that the girls live again in this book, and that's something I'm very proud of. Yeah, it must be very pleasing to you that the central purpose of the, of the book, as I've, I've understood it. Uh, what about you personally? You've lived, quote-unquote, with these women for uh, for a while now. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and, and that is another wonderful thing about, about its success, because I get to be here talking to you about them. So, you know, um, someone asked me the other day, you know, was it sad? When, you know, how, what was your emotion when you finished writing the book? And, and I, and, you know, were you sad? And yes, I was sad because it kind of felt a bit like goodbye, you know, because I'd reached the end. But actually, it's not the end because, as I say, I'm still talking about them. I still get to live with them. I get to celebrate them, to take their message out to readers. And the fact that their voices are now in this book and being heard means that actually the story is never over because you know, next year or the year after or 10 years down the line, someone can always find this book and they can listen to these women's voices. Um, And that is something that I'm personally, you know, delighted about because these girls had been forgotten. People hadn't followed their stories. They hadn't remembered them, who they were as individuals and what they suffered and what they achieved. And I'm just delighted that a record now exists. Well, thank you very much. A fascinating story, important story. Kate Moore has joined us. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for the 
opportunity that you've given me to talk about them. Thank you. The murder of Russian journalist Arkady Babchenko in the Ukrainian capital Kiev horrified people around the world. Many angrily condemned the killing of yet another critic of Vladimir Putin. But then something even more shocking happened. Babchenko came back from the dead. It had all been staged. I'm Jonah Fisher with the inside story of this Russian's resurrection on assignment. Is Utah Public Radio a road trip staple for your family? Do you listen while running errands around town or tune into your favorite program while cleaning? The UPR staff is sharing where we listen to public radio on our social media accounts, and we want you to join us. Share your favorite listening locations with us via email or on social media using the hashtag WhereIListenUPR. We can't wait to hear from you. Next time on Living on Earth, millennials work to transition the world away from dirty energy. I have no illusions that will save the planet from the fossil fuel binge of recent centuries. The planet we evolved on is over. We're now locked into the crazy weather that's on the news every night. But we can prevent collapse. I'm Steve Kerwood. Fossil fuel freedom fighters and more next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This is Debbie Andrew, Development Officer at Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio would like to thank our partners, the Quinney College of Natural Resources, for sponsoring the UPR original series, Loving Our Lands to Death. Find out how you can become a sponsor by emailing debbie.andrew at usu.edu. Happy 65th anniversary, UPR. This is Utah Public Radio, the statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCU Price, and KUSU FM Logan. Also heard online at utr.org.